Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are moving on through the life of Jacob into the story of Joseph. And here, James Jordan is going to give a chronological introduction to the Joseph narrative. Do remember, if you have not yet, to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. When you sign up at the link in the show notes, you will receive a free ebook from Peter Lightheart, and then you'll get a weekly email from us that is a digest of all things Theopolis. With that, thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving a chronological introduction to the Joseph narrative. Genesis 37 to 50 is the Joseph Judah narrative, which is part two of the life of Jacob. And in the time that we have today, just a few comments on the dates and the history here. We'll be introducing this, and it'll be a while before we come back to this, but this gives us something that we can just do and be done with. These dates that I've got down here are Anno Mundi days. They're dates from the creation of the world according to the chronology that we have in Genesis. Let's just read through this and notice what's here. 2259 is when Joseph and Judah are born. 2265, Jacob and Joseph return to Canaan and Joseph is six years old. Joseph is sold into Egypt 2017. We have the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer at the age of, he's 28. Isaac dies in 180, he's 29, he's in prison at this time. Pharaoh's dream happens when Joseph is 30. Seven years later, we have the end of the seven years of plenty, he's age 37. Two years later, Jacob goes down to Egypt, Joseph is 39. The end of the seven years of dearth is when he's 44. Jacob dies at 147 years of age, Joseph is 56, and Joseph dies at 110. Now, those numbers are very interesting, and there are some points to notice. Number one, the death of Isaac, although it's hidden in the narrative, I mean, we have to go back to other passages to find out how old Isaac was and then calculate it. Isaac dies the year before Joseph comes out of prison, and I think there's a significant relationship between the two. Isaac's death can be seen as buying Joseph out of prison. That's how I've got that set here. You can compare how later on in the Bible the death of the high priest allows people to leave the cities of refuge. That's in the law. And remember in the book of Joshua, the very last thing that happens in Joshua is the death of the high priest. And that means that everybody who's stuck in a city of refuge gets to go home. Also remember that in the wilderness wanderings, we wander for 40 years, and what is it that gets us out of the wilderness? It's the death of Aaron. The death of Aaron in Numbers chapter 20 is immediately followed by the conquest of Sihon and Og of Bashan. So the high priest's death, the death of Isaac here, being connected with Joseph coming out of prison, I think is significant, even though it's hidden in the narrative. The second thing that's interesting here and probably is worthy of some reflection, although I'm not sure exactly where to go with it, is that Joseph dies at 110 years of age, and the number 11 figures in his life at significant points. 
Notice how this works out. He comes into Canaan at the age of six, had 11 years, and that's when he goes to Egypt. Had 11 years, and that's where he's interpreting the dreams. Had 11 years, and that's when Jacob and his family come down to Egypt. So this number 11 is significantly structuring life here. And thinking about numbers is always hard theologically. It's easy to say 7 means fullness, or 3 means this, or 4 means that, but sometimes you're not exactly sure because there's a range of things that each number connotes. 11 is one short of 12, and perhaps if there's anything going on here in Genesis, it's that, yes, we do reach a real time of Sabbath rest at the end of Genesis. Yes, we have arrived at the kingdom of God. Yes, the sin of Adam has been reversed in a significant way. Joseph has got royal robes that Adam didn't get. When Adam tried to seize the robe, he wound up with animal skins on instead of anything beautiful, and so forth and so on, things that we'll talk about as we get into it. But it's not the full story. That's not the end of history, and perhaps these 11s here point to that. We're not arriving at the full end of the story, just a partial end, and perhaps this partial number here points to that. Don't know. It's interesting that the number 11 figures again at the end of Judges in some significant ways, but we'll pass that by. Then also, if we look at the chronology and significant dates, there's a chiasm in Joseph's life with his father. He has 17 years with his father in Mesopotamia and Canaan. At 11 years until he's 28, he interprets dreams in prison. At 11 more years until his father comes to Egypt. And then he has 17 years with his father in Egypt. And Jacob is 56 years old when he dies. So there are at least 17, 22, and 17. 17 years with his father, 22 apart from his father, 17 with his father. And that 22 that's in the middle is broken into two elevens. And these are significant numbers. They're very significant in the Psalter. How that relates to this, I don't know. But the third and the fourth books of the Psalter both have 17 psalms in them. The other books trade on the number 17. The number 22 is the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and numerous psalms have 22 lines following out the letters of the alphabet. So again, why did God arrange history this way? There's something buried here that... I'm not sure exactly what to do with, but I thought it worth pointing out and just giving you and your notes to have. Now, let's just look at the history here, and we'll introduce the narrative and see at least who's living when so that we have some historical foundation. We read these stories, and you have to understand the stories in Genesis are not always in chronological order. We've already seen that that the story of the seduction of Dinah and the massacre of the men of Shechem happened several years after Joseph is sold into slavery. We'll see again that Genesis 38, which gives us the story of Judah and Tamar, happens many years after the things that are recorded next about Joseph going down into Egypt. And as a matter of fact, as we'll see just in a moment, the Israelites are already in Egypt when this story of Judah with Tamar takes place. That has to be the case. There's just no way around it. And so it's dischronologized. It's put in chapter 38 because really that's the only place to put it. And, of course, the story of Judah and Tamar has everything to do with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
Judah gets involved with strange women. He gets involved with a prostitute. That's exactly what Joseph didn't do. So the stories are contrastive and they're next to each other for a reason. But they don't happen at the same time. Only a study of the chronology will tell you when these things happen. So at some point we need to do that and not just consider the stories theologically but also historically. So we'll do that now. And here again, these dates are AM dates. On a Monday dates, 2265 is when Jacob returns to Canaan at the age of 99. That's when he wrestles with the angel. And I've got the, the approximate dates of the births of all the sons and grandsons of Jacob listed in here so that you'll just have it somewhere in your notes. We certainly won't be discussing that. But that would be the year that Zebulun, Ben, son of Jacob, was born. Laban pursues Jacob, is turned back by God. God meets Jacob and wrestles with him in Jabbok. Jacob meets Esau and parts from him, settling in Succoth. That's all happening in that year. The next year I've just got down is a possible time when Dinah was born. We don't know exactly when she was born, but she was born after all the rest of them were, and so it's probably shortly after they came back into the Promised Land. In 2276, we've moved down 11 years here. Joseph, age 17, brings back a bad report on his six older brothers, and he has dreams, and he's sold into slavery. And at that same time, Judah leaves his brothers and marries the daughter of Shua. That's in chapter 38, verse 1. It came about at that time, at the time Joseph was sold into slavery, that Judah went down from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, and Judah saw their daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. And so that whole story starts after Joseph is sold into slavery. And you've got sons and grandsons and everything in this story, and that's why it pushes on down a number of years. Well, with his wife, the daughter of Shua, we don't know her name, Judah has a son, Ur, Ur, his firstborn son. We can put that the next year. We'll make this as close as we can. Then a couple of years later, he has another son, Onan. And then he doesn't have another son for a while, We're not sure how far down it goes, but we'll put it several years and uh, see if we can make sense of it. Now, in 2281, which would be two years after that, Dinah, at the age of 15, possibly, is ravished by Hamor of Shechem. When Jacob moves to Shechem, the city of Shechem is raised by Levi and Simeon, who are cursed by Jacob. Jacob moves to Bethel. All of that happens, according to this sketch here, five years after Joseph has gone down into Egypt. And after Judah is already married, we asked the question, didn't we? Back when we looked at the attack on the Shechemites, it says that Simeon and Levi were the two sons who got involved in that, remember? And we said, well, where is Judah? Well, Judah is already married, and he's already off living somewhere else with his wife at this time. We know that. So that's why Judah wasn't involved in this. He may have become involved in it, but the sons who are actually making the decisions here are Simeon and Levi. Possibly Reuben was also married by this time, and that's why he wasn't involved. But that's certainly why Judah wasn't involved, because he wasn't living there with them. He had gone down and was living somewhere else with his own things. 
Well, we've got other events here, the birth of various sons and grandsons and other possible dates. When we come down to 2287, Joseph interprets the dreams, 2288, Isaac dies, 2289. Joseph, age 30, stands before Pharaoh at the beginning of the seven years, and Joseph marries at this point. And then I've got also down here, Sheila, the son of Judah, is born, or Shelah. Shelah. We know that he was born later on because he was younger. Ur marries Tamar. God kills Ur. Onan marries Tamar. God kills Onan. Remember? And then, well, the next son in line is Shelah, and he's supposed to marry Tamar, and he's too young. So, we got to figure out, you know, just to sketch out the history, when these things might have happened, who was living when. We can pull this down a few years. I've got it down here, just what I think is a good possibility. If Ur married at 20 and was killed by God after a couple of years, and Onan is two years younger than Ur, probably. See, all of this is just the kind of thing that might make sense. We can't know for sure. Onan would have been about 20 when he was also killed, because he was killed right away. So Ur marries at 20 after a couple of years. He's 22. Onan is 20. Ur is killed. Onan marries Tamar. Onan is killed right away when he's 20. Now, Shelah at that time was underage, and what does that mean? Well, he's at least under 17, probably a good deal younger than that. Tamar was asked to wait for him to grow up. That's what Judah says. He says, wait till Sheila grows up and I'll marry him to you as well. So what I'm doing here is making Sheila ten years younger than Onan, or ten years old when Onan was killed. Now I have a reason for doing that too. You might say, boy, you're dragging him down more years than you would need to. But in chapter 38, after Judah promises Sheila to Tamar, it says in verse 11, you don't need to look there. I mean, we're going to study all this later. I'm just going to give you the facts here. Judah said to Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And after many days, the daughter of Shua, the wife of Judah, died. And the time of mourning was ended. And then Tamar, remember, dresses up as a cult prostitute and seduces Judah. After a long time, she saw that Sheila had grown and she had not been given to him as a wife after a long time. Well, that implies that there's a decade or so in here, maybe more, that Sheila was young enough to where he's grown up about the time Judah's wife dies, probably. So we have moved down in history quite a ways to this event. So I'm putting the birth of Shelah ten years after the birth of Onan, and Ur, and then two years Onan, and then plus ten years to Shelah. And that makes sense. Well, in the next page, page 152, 2296, we have the end of the seven years of plenty. Nothing's going on in Judah's life at this point. The next year, according to our chronology, According to the closest time we can have, Ur, the son of Judah, would be 20 years old and marries Tamar at that point. Well, this is just before we went down into Egypt. 
We know Judah married the year that Joseph was sold into slavery. The earliest her could be born is the next year. we got to have about 20 years before he's old enough to marry. Maybe he married earlier. But reasonably speaking, this is when he gets married, and you notice that we're already right on the cusp of going down into Egypt when this takes place. In 2298, the next year, after two visits by his sons to Egypt, Jacob moves his household to Goshen. This is exactly 215 years after Abram moved into the land of promise and is the midpoint of the 430 years of dwelling in Egypt. As we can look at that again in detail when we get to it. And then the next year is when we would have this, assuming that Ur was married two years before God killed him. Ur is about 22. Let's assume this is when God kills him. Onan marries Tamar and then kills. Sheila is 10 years old. Tamar is told to wait. Let's assume she waits for 14 years, down to 2313. Now, at this point, we're living in Egypt. So, drop down to 2309. Sheila is 20 years old, but is not given to Tamar. Four years later, 2313, Jacob dies at 147. And then Judah's wife dies. We can just approximate that. Tamar seduces Judah. Of course, that's approximate too. The next year, Perez and Zerah, sons of Judah, are born. That's approximate. And then the next page gives you approximate births of Amram and Yoshebed and the death of Joseph here, which would carry us on down further. So that raises a question, and it tells us something very interesting and significant, which we'll spend a bit more time on when we get to it. But in Genesis chapter 38, this story of Judah and Tamar Judah is dwelling in the land of Canaan at this time. Now, if we're liberals, we can have a lot of fun with that. Here's Goshen down here. And here's our land of Canaan. And here's where Judah is. Goshen, Judah. Well, one series of legends about the ancient Israelites was that they went down to Egypt and lived in the land of Goshen. But another legend says that Judah, one of these men who eventually is considered a patriarch, at the same time was living up here in the land of Canaan. And these two traditions, these two legends, were woven together in the book of Genesis and just put together. Well, that's what a liberal would do with this. But we're not liberals, not barking dog liberals. What actually is happening is, well, we come down here to the land of Goshen for the last five years of the years of dearth. We need food. you got to get down here in Goshen and have some food. But the clan of Jacob is a mighty sheikdom. There are hundreds, probably thousands of people with him. They all come down here. Well, these are sheep herders and other things. They don't stay in one place. They may be headquartered down here in Goshen. But just because they're headquartered here doesn't mean they don't have any more contact up here. They've still got relatives up here. They've still got friends up here. Judah's got relatives up here. There's still good pasture land up here. The Egyptians don't like shepherds. Egypt doesn't have shepherds. What does Egypt make? It makes bread. Every year the Nile floods and then it goes back and it leaves all this wonderful dirt there and they grow grain in Egypt. 
Egypt is a breadbasket. They don't fool with animals very much there. Cows are sacred. And they don't like sheep. In fact, we're going to hear that. The sheep herder is a detestable thing to the Egyptians. So they're not interested in sheep herders. So although we're living here in Goshen, we're traveling up here into the land of Canaan, the old places where we used to hang around, and we're doing our sheep herding stuff up there. Of course, eventually they enslave the Israelites and all of this comes to a stop. But what we learn from this story is that for as long as Joseph was alive, which is a long time, the Israelites, the Hebrews, lived down here as an important sheikdom and still with international contacts and everything else. They didn't just go down to Egypt and hide. And actually there's evidence in First Chronicles when you've got the list of various sons, there are statements about battles and wars that were fought that some scholars think happened during this time as well, that, that we were very active up in this part of the world during this period. I'm not going to go into that. But at least that's two things that emerge from here that you wouldn't... I mean, a lot of people don't know this. <laughs> they read Genesis. They think somehow or other Judah had sons and then grandsons, and all of this happened before they went down to Egypt. No way. This has to have happened years after they had officially moved to Egypt. And so the story is telling us that even after we officially moved to Egypt, we were still active in the Promised Land. Just to introduce this, we'll have to come back to this, but one of the interesting things about the Joseph narrative stands out are all the pairs and doubles that are in it. And I've just got them listed here. Just listen to them. Joseph's two dreams. Dreams of the stars and of the sheaves of grain. The parallel lives of Judah and Joseph, which are very similar. They both have two sons. Both their sons are switched places in their birth order. There are all kinds of parallels, and they're very deliberately set up here in the narrative. Judah's two slain sons, Ur and Onan. Judah's twin sons through Tamar. Two temptation scenes with Potiphar's wife. However many times she tried to get Joseph, it's recorded twice. Baker and cupbearer. Two dreams in prison. Two dreams that Pharaoh has. Pharaoh calls for his priests and his wise men. Joseph becomes both. There are two sets of seven years. Joseph has two sons. There are two visits by the brothers to Egypt. Reuben has two sons, which he offers to Jacob. Twice in Genesis 47, the Egyptians come to beg Joseph for food. There are probably others. Everything is doubled up. And the theme seems to be a testimony of two witnesses. This is run all the way through Genesis, of course. The two witnesses can be parallel or they can contrast. Cain and Abel, both witness to the same thing, faithfulness to God and worship, but they're contrasts. And others. And then I've got some remarks here on twins. And also on the next page, the whole Joseph narrative is set out in pairs. Now there's more than one way to analyze it, and the narrative is chiastic as well. But there's no problem with the fact that it can be done in more than one way. There are 14 nicely unified stories in the Joseph narrative. It doesn't have loose ends. Each story starts in beginning and end, and you can outline it very simply. And if you just glance at this sometime, and we'll come back to it, you'll see that these stories are in pairs. 
especially B and B, C and B, sexual temptation involving Judah, B prime, sexual temptation involving Joseph, and so forth. And you can see there how the doubling is set up and how it's laid out. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.